bull weevils in the cotton patch, king get them out. And it's all that we have to talk about. We've got good people and their beliefs. What we need for the people is a farm relief. And it looks to me we should all agree. What we need for the people is a farm relief. We can eat sow belly with turnip greens. But we sure do have to plan and scheme. We all start working at the break of day, and we don't get credit. And Hello. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, in this episode, I'll be beginning the, the second volume. Maybe it's the first. I don't know the order of publication here. But uh, anyway, the second volume of James Adgey's writing, uh, specifically the bulk of this next series of, I think, eight episodes will be let us now praise famous men, and then we'll be able to look at his fiction, which uh, is basically uh, Death in the Family, uh, The Morning Watch, which is a really short novel, one of his first he wrote, and then three short stories. Uh, so we'll cover that after looking at Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. Um, so anyways, before I jump into that, I, it's been a while since I recorded anything. It's been I had actually planned to go through the edgy works kind of one episode a day, and kind of work through it really quick. And then, um, you know, my cat ran away. So back in, uh, this is, it's, this is uh, September 1st. So back in March, not long after I moved into this new apartment in China, I got, uh, I took in this, this cat, uh, like a two-month-old um, stray cat. And, uh, you know, I, I thought I had a good relationship with him. We, uh, but anyways, I, I had him for, you know, six months or so. And I was actually preparing to, to take him with me to Taiwan when I returned, which is a big bureaucratic castle. So I'm involved with that. But I was going through all the shots, going through everything to get that ready. Uh, neutered him and everything. Um, and he, he ran away on me a little bit over a week ago. And I've been spending most of my time kind of searching for him around the neighborhood, putting up posters talking to delivery people, talking to neighbors, and I haven't had much luck. Uh, there's a lot of, of that type of orange cat around this neighborhood. Uh, I think all relative maybe of, of Little Rusty. Um, but anyways, I've been pretty upset, pretty down about that. I really love the guy and, and I don't know. I'm gonna hold out hope that he'll appear or I'll run into him. I, I know there's stories of, of cats appearing after a while, I don't know, and I don't know what luck I'll have with that, but I keep my eyes open, search for them a little bit each day. Uh, but anyways, I, I just thought I would share that and, and kind of, uh, you know, let you know that. It's, it's, I don't talk too much about my personal life here on this podcast, but that's been a kind of a major blow to me recently. So, uh, I don't know. Anyways, enough about that. Uh, let us now praise famous men. So this was, I think this is the work maybe Edgy is most well known for. Um, it's on first glance, and I think by original intention, it was supposed to be really reportage on the conditions of, of sharecroppers in the, in the South. Edgy from Fortune Magazine had written other pieces of journalism about issues you know, especially in the South. He wrote like that piece on the Tennessee Valley Authority, which I reviewed in the previous episode. He wrote the one about cockfighting, um, and he's of the South, so he was chosen to 
to go there by Fortune magazine. So originally he was going to write like articles and reportage for Fortune magazine. And he went with Walker Evans, the famous photographer. And you probably, if you've seen some of the photos that are included with Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, uh, the Library of America has 64 of them. I think it's the whole, every, all the Walker Evans photos are connected to this book are, are there. And they're really beautiful photos. I, I can't really um, say too much. I think you can find a lot of them online. I, I do urge you to glance at them if you're interested in, in this work at all, because they are really striking and they, they're part of the work. They really can't be disconnected. This really is a co-authored co in a way, Adji writing the words and, and Walker giving the, the photos, which provides so much humanity and so much uh, clarity to, to so much of what Adji's trying to, to do. So although it, it kind of is a work of reportage, and parts of it certainly do that, fit that, he's got sections that, that seem almost kind of dry, where he's just like, well, this is the clothing they wear. This is the type of work they do. This is their finances. This is what their buildings look like. Very straightforward, very matter-of-fact. And in the next episode, the second part of this is all that. And, you know, there's good stuff in there, but it, it is more of a straightforward reportage. Um, but other times he has these kind of philosophical meditations, uh, very, very personal meditations, uh, very, uh, you know, he includes some poetry here. He, you know, he's doing a lot of things. He's kind of mixing genres here. And I think he's, he's trying to combine his own personal reflections, some, some philosophical musings about the conditions of poor people in the, in the South. Um, and with the matter-of-fact reality of their life. And he does it in a, in a one sense, a very apolitical way. He, he kind of separates himself from the politics of it. You know, 1939, well, he actually went in, I think, 1936 to, to meet these families. It's three families, and so they're all related through marriage or something. They're, they're all kind of connected. They're all in the same area. Uh, he's, you know, he saw those in 1936. The book is written over the next few years, and it comes out in a book form in 1939. Um, so by this point, I mean, the New Deal is, is well underway, and you can see kind of maybe the limits of the New Deal relief efforts, the, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, and any other policies, in actually making material improvements in these people's lives, at least in the short term. Um, now, this, uh, he has pathos, certainly. He, he uses that. He, he certainly presents these people with a certain degree of pity and uh you know but at the same time he doesn't he's not like uh banging the shoe on the on the on the lectern saying this is what we have to do it's not like the jungle if you read that book which also a very humanistic look at the life of immigrant workers but at the end it's got this it's 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 the hammer on the on the podium same thing with like i think some of jack london's work like the iron heel where you know that's just speech after speech um, so a lot of writers who write about the poor, write about poverty, who write about uh, these kinds of issues, they tend to, to kind of have their policy recommendations, whether it's radical or, or, or moderate. You know, that's part of what they're trying to, to say. I, I think, in a way, this work reminds me a little bit of the octopus in that there's some ennui about it, that there's some uh, just regret about how little can be done and kind of how, hope dig, how deep the hole these people are in. Um, but nevertheless, I think he, he is making a moral argument about equality, about 
the, the general humanity of people, and and some he's got this pathos about them, but he doesn't come at it politically. And you know, he's his politics really are something I haven't quite grasped yet. Like when you look at his film reviews, he was very sympathetic to kind of left leaning films, but he also liked a lot of right leaning films. He's not. He actually applied for a grant around the time he was working on Let Us Now Praise Famous Men to write a book on like that, like something called the Anti-Communist Manifesto or something. So he's not a communist. He's not even a socialist. He's just somehow in some kind of fuzzy gray area, you know, politically. And, and I think he's not an author we should maybe try to pin down politically too much. Just just enjoy his writing, I think, is, is what we can do. And, and I think this is a very special work in this series in that it is, it's not fiction, it's based on, on real life, but it's, it's a very, very intimate portrait of, of real people. It, it is a work of nonfiction, even though it's, it seems to be, um, there seems to be a building of, of artistic experimentation around it. So I don't know, it's a hard work, I think, to, to talk about and to discuss, but I'm, I'm going to make an effort to at least say some things about my thoughts about uh, uh, this work, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. Okay, the subtitle for the book is Three Tenant Families, which is essentially what this work does. It's, its original intent was reportage about sharecroppers in the South, white sharecroppers. He doesn't say that much about race directly. He talks about black people, but they're always on the margins of, of the story. He focuses on these three families, and we get their 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 image, right? Uh, in uh, we get the pictures of these three families in the Walker Evan photo essay. We get their homes. We get the, the pictures of their children. We get family portraits. The pictures of the clothing they wear. A lot of the things that Adji will talk about uh, in the book are can be contrasted and and, and read alongside these these very very stunning and, and beautiful photos. So I don't know, really highly recommended. But I don't know if it's for everyone. I think it's 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 a bit of a challenging work. Um, um, yeah. So this edition that the Library of America includes is a later edition of the book, published in 1960 after Edgy died. And it has a, has a brief introduction by, um, by Walker Evans. And what the sense you get when you look at Evans' introduction, it's mostly about Adji, and it's about a, kind of a memorial of Adji. And Walker Evans' experience was this trip to, to the South with him. And he writes of Adji, quote, Adji worked in what looked like a rush and a rage. In Alabama, he was possessed with the business, jamming it all into the days and the nights. He must not have slept. He was driven to see all he could of the family's day, starting, of course, with at dawn. In one way, conditions were ideal. He could live inside the subject with no distractions. Backcountry poor life wasn't really far from him, actually. He had some of it in his blood through relatives in Tennessee. Anyways, he was in flight from New York Magazine editorial offices, from Greenwich Village social intellectual evenings, and especially from the whole world of high-minded, well-bred, money-hued culture, whether authoritarian or libertarian. In Alabama, he sweated and scraped with submerged glee. The families understood what he was down there to do. He explained it in such a way that they were interested in his work. He wasn't playing. That is why in the end, he left out certain completed passages that were entertaining in an acid way. One of these was a long 
gradually hilarious aside on the subject of hens. It was a virtuoso piece heightened with allegory and bemused with the pathetic fallacy. He won almost everyone in those families, perhaps too much, even though some of the individuals were hard bitten, sore, and shrewd. Probably it was, his, it was his diffidence that took him into them. That non-assurance was, I think, a hostage to his very Anglican childhood training. End quote. Um, so a little bit about how Edgy interacted and, and made himself part of these families for the time he was, time he was there. So the first hundred pages or so of Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, and I'm not including here the photos, uh, which are 60, 64 pages of it. You know, probably someone who could talk about photography. If you had these in front of you, you, know, you could say quite a lot about them, but it's hard on a, on a podcast to do that. Um, but the first hundred pages or so really is almost a preface. If you're coming at this expecting reportage about the lives of the sharecroppers, it takes them about... 100 pages in this 400-page book. It takes them a quarter of the book to actually get into the, those details of their life. He spends most of the first 100 pages musing on various things, uh, telling the story of how they got there, telling the story of the nearby town, telling the story of his own feelings, his own guilt, his own anxieties about the role he's in, um, and then talking about his own personal fascination with some of the family members, his, his attraction to, to some of the women, and these, and it's, he very much wears his heart on the sleeve in these parts in the book. And I think that's something that makes this, this kind of fascinating, um, fascinating story. You can compare this to other texts, um, like, uh, what's the name of it? Like something that, like the report on economic conditions of the South, um, which is like a more of a governmental approach. It's a good book. It's an interesting book to read. I, I've actually signed it in, in, in history classes before. It's, it's, uh, it's printed in a little reader you can, you can get for a few bucks. Um, that, it's a very different approach. And I, I think that's, this really is literature. It's not just uh, reportage that's supposed to lead to some kind of government policy. Um, all right. Um, so the, the, the format of the book also is really strange. It's like, it's in two books, but the first book is just front matter, essentially. Uh, there's not anything... There's not that much there to talk about. It's just like, he's, he just crammed some front matter there. I'll, I'll talk about what's there because it's, it's kind of fascinating. But that's called book one. And then the rest of the book is book two, which is broken up into various chapters that do, do different things. Um, so just glancing at the table of contents of Let Us Now Praise Famous Men is, is kind of revealing. In, and it shows us that he's really experimenting. Adji, of course, very much interested in modernist literature, uh, a fan of Joyce, uh, as, as I think we talked about a little bit in the previous series. When we first were introduced to Adji. I guess one more thing to say is this, this wasn't meant to be the whole book. He, he, had, he, he had intended to have a larger work uh, called Three Tenant Families, this being just one volume of it called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. So maybe that, I'm not sure what he would have, you know, he never did write that one. And I don't know what that would have been had he finished it entirely, but, um, but you know, this is what we got. He writes in his preface, the nominal subject is North American cotton tenantry as examined in the daily living of three representative white tenant families. Again, he, he introduces it as a very commonplace piece of reportage when in fact he's doing something quite uh, different that, that really does reach the level of literature. And he even says here, and then I think one thing he's, 
very clearly trying to do, or they are trying to do here, is let the text tell a story and let that text coexist with, with photography and, and those images. And they are dependent on each other, and they're not really independent of each other either. You can't look at the pictures without the text, but at the same time, looking at the text with other pictures doesn't quite work either. He says, for instance, the immediate instruments are two, the motionless camera and the printed word. The governing instrument, which is also one of the centers of the subject, is individual anti-authoritarian human consciousness. Unquote. And that that's maybe his politics, uh, just humanism, uh, individualism. I mean, these are in America, these, these terms are kind of, can be vapid or can be very meaningful, depending on how they're used or who's using them. Um, and doesn't, I think that's fine uh, here because that is what we get out of this book, is this very, very humanistic account of the lives of these people who, whose lives have, have richness, even though Adji does have some pathos and ennui about their fate and where they can go from here. Um, you know, he's... Well, he's always reminding the reader to, to focus on the, the nominal subject, the three tenant families, right? Even when he's very, being very personal and talking about himself and his own feelings and his own ambivalence and his own anxieties, he still insists that this is work of the three tenant families. The preface actually has a lot of interesting, fun little things in it, like where he says, this book's meant to be read aloud, but you can't really recommend doing that, so, so read it. He says, quote, the reader attends to his ear when he takes off the page for variations of tone, pace, shape, and dynamics. Things you can't, you know, get by just looking at your eye by yourself. Uh, he says it should be read continuously. He says, like, you know, don't listen to what the publishers have to say about how to read this. Yeah, I, I, things like that. Uh, some kind of interesting uh, commentary on on, t on him tell telling us how to read. I, you don't see that too often in, in in literature. Then we jump to book one, which really is just, I guess. Uh, a set of preliminaries. Uh, book one is it's it's just front matter really. We got a poem uh, about about poverty. Or I'll read it to you. Uh, Poor naked wretches, wherever so you are, that bide the pelting of this pitiless storm. How shall your household heads and unfed sides, your loop and windows raggedness, defend you from seasons such as these? Oh, I have ten too little care of this. Take physic, pomp, expose thyself to feel what wretches feel, that thou might shake the superflux to them and show the heavens more just. And that's just that's how the book sort of opens after the preface. Then he quotes the Communist Manifesto writing, Workers of the World Unite and Fight, you have nothing to lose but your chains and a world to win. But then he, he has a footnote, which is several times longer than the quote itself, saying These, this doesn't mean what you think it means. Um... So again, he's, he's making something that's a clearly normally seen as a very, very political thing and saying this is not meant to be read political. I think we have to put this in the context of his demand that we read this as, as a narrative of individualism, of, 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 um, of human consciousness. Quote, individual anti-authoritative human consciousness. Um, after that, we have a, a commentary on the basic needs of life, because that is... A lot of what the bulk of the book is is a commentary on the basic necessities of life, food, clothing, shelter. 
and how these three families have that or lack it. Um, uh, but he starts out saying the world is our home. It's also the home of many, many other children, some of whom live in faraway lands. They are our world's brothers and sisters. Um, nice little shout out to human solidarity. And then we get uh, some commentary on food, clothing, and shelter. In fact, all of this comes from a book. This is just quoted from a book called Around the World with Children, a geography textbook, which uh, one of the children, uh, Gruder, I'll use the fake names for what it is, because that's the names we use in the, in the book, uh, owned. Then we get a list of the people, the three families. Uh, so the three families are the, the Ricketts family, the first one, Fred Ricketts, Sadie Ricketts. Now, all these names are fake. We, we now know the real family names. And it's easy. You can find them on Wikipedia if you want. Some people actually followed up these families and, and interviewed them later and see how they responded to the book and all that. Um, the Ricketts family have seven kids, ages 20 to, to age four. He's the most successful of the families, the Ricketts, in, in terms of just material conditions being a two-meal. Two They're all tenant farmers, but they are, they are in different levels of prosperity. Ricketts, who had a few good years in the past, has two mules. Um, then we get the Woods, uh, Woods family, Thomas Gallatin Woods. He's a one-mule farmer. Uh, he's 59 years old. His wife, he's got a, a second wife who's very young, Ivy Woods, who's actually the half-sister of, of Sadie Ricketts. Uh, the wife of the first family. So they're connected by marriage in this way. And they have five, five kids. Um, one of these kids, oh, sorry, the, yeah, one, the older of the Woods kids who's not living in the home married the third, the husband, the, the, the patriarch of the third family, George Gruder. He's the youngest of them. He's 31 and he's the poorest of them. He's, he's a, he's a half cropper. The other two are tenant farmers, which seems to be a little, being tenant farm was a little bit better because he just paid the rent, being a sharecropper. A um, little bit lower class in the status of, of tenant farming. Um, uh, the youngest of the, of the families, and, and Annie May Gruder is actually her, her maiden name is Woods. So she's, she was a Wood too. So both of these families are connected to the Woods through marriage. Um, then they have four kids. Then we have like a list of other characters, um, landlords. He even lists himself, James Adji, as a spy traveling as a journalist, and Walker Evans as a counter spy traveling as a photographer. Uh, we got a list of a few places here. And this is interesting. He, he has a list here unpaid agitators. Uh, and they, they're William Blake, Louise Ferdinand Sillen, Ring Lardner, Jesus Christ. Sigmund Freud, Lonnie Johnson, Irving Upham, others. Um, kind of, kind of fascinating that he includes them there. They're, they're, they're in the or they're in the background of Adji's mind, I guess, as he's thinking about these families. And that front matter, that which is essentially just front matter, is book one. And then we jump into book two, and virtually the rest of 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 it is these. Uh, reportages on things like money, shelter, clothing, education, uh, all that kind of stuff, interspersed with sections called On the Porch or A Country Letter, 
um, inter an intermission, which are which are chances for Adji to give more of his own personal, you know, reflections on on what he's seen and talk about his own experiences in a way. Now, <clears throat> the first hundred pages of this book are the hardest to read. I think uh, the hardest, partially because you, you're not quite where you think you're going to get in a, in a book about three tenant families. Um, you know, especially when the original project was sponsored by Fortune magazine. Um, you know, it, it gets easier to read as you go on. I also think, you know, Adji's advice that this is to be read out loud is, is well taken. Unfortunately, there really isn't an audiobook version available. There might be a one you could pay for, but this is not public domain yet. So, at least not in the U.S., so there's not like a liberal box reading of it. Hopefully, soon, uh, it will enter the true public domain and we'll get a, an audiobook, because this really deserves it. This really is, um, this would benefit, I think, from having a, a freely available audiobook. Now, much of the opening of this, which I think he calls, it's in the, he doesn't give it a name. He calls it a pre, no, he calls it a preamble in the, in the table of contents is mostly Adji expressing kind of a regret about what he's doing. And this is kind of a famous aspect of this book. I think it's even talked about on the Wikipedia entry for it. Is, is kind of this anxiety about kind of the voyeuristic nature of what he's doing, especially after I think he got to know these families and, and knew their struggles and knew their experiences and their hearts. He started to feel he's using them in a way. Um, he writes, for instance, it seems to me curious not to say obscene and thoroughly terrifying that it could occur to an association of human beings drawn together through need and chance and for profit into a company, an organ of journalism, to pry intimately into the lives of an undefended and appallingly damaged group of human beings, an ignorant and helpless rural family for the purpose of parading their, the nakedness, disadvantage, and humiliation of these lives before another group of human beings in the name of science, of honest journalism, of humanity, and social fearlessness, for money and for a reputation of crusading, and for unbiased, which when skillfully enough, qualified as exchangeable at a bank for money. So that's his regret. Now, I think this is not an uncommon sentiment in, in writers like this. I think that's why you get the polemics. I think that's why you get most writers who kind of do this with the policy prescriptions at the end. Who say, okay, this is what sucks about this aspect of American life. This is what should be done to fix it. You know, and even if it's, you know, just flipping over the table and yelling revolution, that's, that's you know, that's something, right? And actually he doesn't do that. He resists doing that. And he thinks that's just as much using them. But here he's pointing on the, pointing to the money. Fortune magazine, obviously being able to hopefully make some profit, or the publisher making profit from, from this, this reportage, but others who would use them for whatever kind of political agenda they might have. Um, so he does ask repeatedly in this, this, um, this prelude, or preamble, I should say, you know, essentially what right does he have to even do this, to write about these, this family? What right did he have to, to go to their families? What right did he have to stick his nose into into their business. Um, and I think that's well taken. I think it's not, it's never resolved. It's, it's just, he actually obviously does it, but he still asks this question repeatedly in this preamble. He also though talks about the power of photography. And, and that's why I think, you know, the, the, the text 
and the photographs really do, they collaborate and they almost seem to depend on each other. At one point, I think he does say they kind of exist independently, but I'm not sure. I think they do sort of feed off each other. Um, and, you know, I think in a sense of modernism and, and kind of how artists will try to combine genres to create something new, they're trying to do this here, Evans and, and Hadji. And it's the power of photography that makes this possible. He says, um, if I had explained myself clearly, you would realize by now that through this non-artistic view, this effort to suspend or destroy imagination, there opens before consciousness and within it a universe, luminous, spacious, incalculably rich, and wonderful in every detail, as relaxed and natural to the human swimmer, and as full of glory and its breathing, and that it is possible to capture and communicate this universe, not so well by any means of art as through open terms of trying it under. I, I think there, that's something photography can do. Photography can provide that, that gritty realism that's, that's maybe not possible through art, because with art you get the artist and you get uh, some kind of haze of, of whatever the artist is trying to do. He also says in this preamble that he's clearly not trying to be scientific or political or revolutionary or religious or, 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 or mystical or, or, or kind of coming at it with any agenda whatsoever. Now, whether he is or not, I don't know. Um, that said, though, you see in this preface a very, very clear fascination with the, with the modernists and the modernists as uh, people of their time and people who are not fully understood in their time, right? So he's kind of almost acknowledging that this book and this approach may not be fully digested at the time. He writes, people hear Beethoven in concert halls or over bridge games or to relax. Cezanne is hung on walls, reproduced in natural wood frames. Van Gogh is a man who cut off his ear and whose yellow has become recently popular in window decorations. Swift loved individuals but hated the human race. Kafka is a fad. Blake is in the modern library. Freud is a modern library giant. Doshenko's frontier is disliked by those who demand that it fits its Eisenstein aesthetic. Nobody reads Joyce anymore. Celine is a madman who's incurred the hearty dislike of Alfred Kazin, reviewer for the New York Herald Tribune book section, and is more of a fascist. I hope I need not mention Jesus Christ, to whom you have managed to make a dirty Gentile. End quote. So this is the fate of the revolutionary artists, to, to be hung on the wall, to be preserved, and to be disconnected from their context. So his warning here is, in, in the sense he's trying to say, I don't want this work to be art. I want this work to be the sh about the share, a reportage on the sharecroppers. And despite that, he kind of often fails to do that when he spends so much time reflecting on his own heart and his own feelings, right? Like you almost never hear their words. I think that's a, something that really struck me. It, as much as he wrote, and it sounds like he hung out the day with them and they went and, and immediately wrote about them and then came back the next day you know he was in their homes too but you don't get you never you rarely get their voice um, in the in this text it's almost all Adji's voice now he does have different voices that of the the journalist that of the reporter and that of the artist and that of the, the lover and that of the you know someone who's has an intimate friendship and connection to these people, but you almost never hear their voice itself. And I think that's 
if you really wanted to tell their story, wouldn't you do like the Studs Terkel approach? Just listen to them and just report on what they said, you know, as real as possible, literally just documenting what they said. Um, so, I don't know, that's my, that's my thoughts on, on that prelude, that, that preamble. Um, then we get the first on the porch, uh, and I'll just give you a taste of it, because this is meant to be read aloud, so I'll give you a little taste of, of this. Introduction, or this, it's still sort of all preliminary. The house and all that was in it had now descended deep beneath the gradual spire as it sunk through. It lay formal under the order of entire, entire silence. In the square pine room at the back of bodies of a man of 30 and his wife and their children lay in shallow mattresses on their iron beds and on the rigid floor. And they were sleeping, and the dog lay asleep in the hallway. Most human beings, most animals and birds who live in the sheltering ring of human influence, and a great portion of all the branch tribes of living on inner earth, and air and water upon half of the world were stunned with sleep. That region of the earth on which we were at this time, transient, was some hours fallen beneath the fascination of the stone, steady shadow of the planet, and lay now listing towards that last depth. And now by the blockade of the sun were clearly disclose those discharges of light which teach us what little we can learn of the stars and of the nature of our surroundings. There were no longer any sound in the setting or the ticking of any part of the structure of the house. The bone pine hung on its nails like an abandoned Christ. There were no longer any sounds of the sinking and settling, this gently foundering fatal boats of the bodies and brains of this human family through the late stages of fatigue, unharnessed, or the early phases of sleep nor were there any longer any sense of any of these sounds, nor were there even the sounds or the sense of breathing. Bone and bone, blood and blood, life and life, disjointed and abandoned, they lay graven in so final depth that dreams attend them seem not plausible. That, that's, uh, and it goes on like this, but that's the kind of approach that Angie's taking to this, to this text. So again, you're not getting, you jump into this, you're not getting the, a sense of this is their life and this is this is their account book you'll get that later on but not so much here instead you just get this sense of, of of exhausted tired people in a tired community in a tired land sleeping at night right from exhaustion and, and from the whole exhaustion of their suffering and their, their struggles and their their challenges um, after this we get uh, late Sunday morning which is actually Adji and Walker in town, um, kind of where he, I think he, I think they like to meet the landlord. They, they see some of the sites of, of the town. Uh, then we get a section called At the Forks, which basically accounts them arriving to the sharecroppers' homes. And then we get more of that in near a church. So we get several preliminary sections that kind of talk about the author and Walker, the photographer, you know, kind of going to this place and their experiences as they see what's what's before them. And again, like the immediate uh, feeling that Adji kind of reports here is one of of sort of guilt, not just for the tenant families themselves, but for others as well, who he passes by and doesn't talk to. Uh, he writes, for instance, quote, while we were wondering whether to force a window, a young Negro couple came past up the road without appearing to look either longer or less long, or with more or less interest than a white man might care for, 
and without altering their pace, they made it through observation of us, of the car and of the tripod and camera. We spoke and nodded, smiling as casual, casually. They spoke and nodded gravely as they passed and glanced back once, not secretly, not nor long, nor in amusement. They made us, in spite of our knowledge of our own meanings, ashamed and insecure in our wish to break into and possess their church. And after a minute or two, I decided to go after them and speak to them and ask them if they knew where we might find a minister or some other person who might let us in, if it would be all right. So again, kind of this anxiety about being a voyeur is, is, is really palpable in these early passages of, of this book. And then we get a 35-page section uh, under the heading, Part 1, A Country Letter. And it's a big bulk of the overall text of the book, uh, which, again, it's still very preliminary, right? Um, which is sort of agi introducing us to the three families, but he does it in a very, very intimate way, in a very, very um, personal way, right? It's not, oh, th this family has this many members and so many kids and, and this. He, he gets to that sort of details later on. Instead, this is all very, very personal. Even getting into like almost the intimate of his relationships with, with some of these people. For instance, he talks about uh, um, not well. Clearly, what Edgy's trying to do here, in part, is to explore and document their humanity and their individuality and their individual experiences as best he can. Again, I, I think getting that through their own voice would be. Some would have been my approach. That's not what Angie does. That's fine. Um, but what he does here is very, very, very interesting. Um, you know, this is how he kind of writes about this. He says, All that each person is and experiences and shall never experience in body and in mind, all these things are differing expressions of himself and of one root and are identical. And not one of these things nor one of these persons is ever quite to be duplicated nor replicated replaced, nor has it ever quite had precedence. But each is a new and incommunicably tender life, wounded in every breath, and almost as hardly killed as easily wounded, sustaining for a while without defense the enormous assaults of the universe. So how can it be that a stone, a plant, a star can take on the burden of being, and how is it that a child can take on the burden of breathing, and how long and how through so long a continuation and culmination of the burden of each moment, one on another, does any creature bear to exist and not break utterly to fragments of nothing? These are matters too dreadful and fortitudes too gigantic to mediate long and not forever to worship. And wow. That's some pretty amazing writing, I think, uh, on this. I don't know of any other writer who goes at this topic in, 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 this, in this way. Um, now, much of a country letter is about these two sisters, Emma, Emma May, or, Emma, sorry, Emma and Anne and, and May. Emma and Anne May. These are, uh, now, Anne May Woods is married to George Bruder, the, the youngest of these three uh, tenant um, men, these tenant farmers. She's 27. And then there's this sister, Emma. Now, I, I don't think, I couldn't find her picture in there. Maybe I'm missing who she is because they're not labeled. But um, Emma is 18 and married, so she's kind of out. She's she's in some other family, I think. Um, but she hangs out and she visits her sister. She's much younger, but these are both the children of, of 
Thomas in Ivy Woods, right? Oh, sorry. Um, sorry, Thomas Woods in his first, Thomas Woods' first wife, because he remarried someone younger. Uh, so these are these two sisters. And one of these, Emma, like Angie talks about is like almost his, well, not almost, his, his, his direct sexual attraction towards her. It's actually a little bit wild. Then we get various like other vignettes. He kind of, in the same kind of literary way, using these different modernist techniques, introduces us to the other tenant families. He seems to focus on the Gruders most. I think that's maybe who he spent the most time with. Um, but so it's a really fascinating section. And again, I think this more than maybe other sections of the book is the is the part that kind of needs to be read aloud, needs to be kind of uh, meditated on. But it's not something that it's easy to talk about. It's, it's more of an experience to have, I think. And I, and I urge you to, to have that experience. So read a country, country letter just for, you know, just for the prose, just for the art of it all. Then we get uh, a section called Cologne, a curtain speech, um, which is sort of his close to all this uh, preliminary uh, matter. And his and his meditation. So these are the these. Here's what we, that's what we get in the first hundred pages of Let Us Now Praise Famous. But actually, the first hundred sixty include the, the photographs, which I talked about. But but you know those are sort of part of the whole text. Um, so it takes us a quarter of the bulk of this book to actually get to what we're kind of expecting, which is like the commentary, the, the, the journal, more journalistic commentary on it. But that's where I'm going to pick up in the next episode is with a, a section on, on their jobs, on their money, on maybe on their housing, their, you know, the kind of places they live. And then we go from this very personal, very artistic, very uh, reflective, very imaginative approach to this topic to, to in many ways, the, the very mundane very very straightforward you know the things the kind of things you'd expect to see in a newspaper account uh, or a, or a sociolo a sociologist textbook talking about these tenant families so but I, but I think it altogether it sort of works in its own kind of weird way um, so anyways uh, that's just some of my thoughts on the first part of let us now praise famous men uh, I, I just can't recommend enough that you read this once in your life just just for the experience of, of it all and the photographs are beautiful uh, the writing often is beautiful I think it's such such a stunning defense of, of individualism of humanity in the face of like the sociologist I, I think and it yeah I think I don't know if he's doing it directly he kind of makes a few oblique references to the sociologist but you know, I think there's a criticism of the sociologist, of the, of like the policymaker of these, that, that see people, see subcultures, see groups in America, poor African-Americans or Indians, as a, as a problem that needs to be sort of understood and solved. So the way you do that is you pack up, you go there and you observe them and you write your book and, and you do it like an anthropologist or whatever. You kind of, uh, you know, write your account, you make your policy proposals, right? And, and then you, you leave them, right? Adji doesn't want to do that. He doesn't, he thinks they're, they're as individual as human beings, as part of the human species, they deserve more than that. They, they deserve more than just this kind of indifferent, uh, uh, 
analysis of their dysfunction, if you will, right? I, I think there's too much of that. I, I, I like that approach to it. I, I like him not falling into that trap of, of being the sociologist with an answer to everything. Or he doesn't try to apply a theory or a model, you know, to try to understand them. He, he would never say anything like cultures of poverty or, or any nonsense like that, as some people sometimes do. So, yeah, that's it. So if you've read Now Let Us Praise Famous Men, uh, let us now praise famous men, I mean, uh, let me know. Uh, in the next episode, I'll talk about uh, the next hundred pages, which has some good stuff in it, but it's, it's a very different style. I think that first hundred pages is the hardest to get through, it, it, especially if you don't know what you're expecting. But, you know, kind of work your way through it if you can. So that'll be it for now. Uh, thanks for listening as always, and I'll Look see you next me, time. We should all agree what we need for the people is the farm relief. Rent too high and the market too low. We ask for credit and they all say no. We got good people and they all know well what the poor old farm.